Now, if you were to survey some of the most successful companies uh, in the world today, uh, you would find that many of them, especially tech firms in Silicon Valley, many of them began with a significant amount of venture capital funding that backed them. Uber uh, would be an example of this. Airbnb uh, would be a, a good example of that. But every once in a while, you'll find a unicorn in the mix. And what I mean by unicorn is a company that didn't start with much of anything backing them, and yet they went on to enormous success. For instance, let me give you a couple examples. This fast food company, we'll see if you can guess who this is. This fast food company was founded by uh, one man with a PhD and a 17-year-old kid, and they only started with $1,000 in seed money. And today, They have over 44,000 locations in 111 countries, and both of the founders are now billionaires. Any idea on the name of the company? Somebody in the first service guessed it. Subway. Subway. Uh, A PhD and a 17-year-old kid with $1,000. That's what they started with. Remarkable, isn't it? Here's another one. This company was founded by three academics, a writer, an English teacher, and a history teacher. And each of them ponied up about $1,300 as the seed money to start their business. Today, the company is valued at $30 billion. Any ideas? Starbucks. Starbucks. Did you know that story? It's pretty remarkable to me. And in fact, to me, those are the most inspiring, uh, fascinating stories of organizational success, if for no other reason than simply because of the improbability of their success. No one would have given them much of a chance to survive, let alone become enormous successes, the enormous successes that they've become. But here's the thing. As improbable as those stories are and others uh, like them, all of those stories, in fact, every story, every improbable story pales in comparison to the story of the spread of Christianity. And secular historians still can't explain, still don't understand why Christianity has survived for over 2,000 years. Think about it. Jesus sends out a band of uneducated fishermen. They're nothing more than country yokels. They don't have any rank. They don't have any political clout. They're they're, they're, They're part of a nation that really isn't even a nation at that point in time. And he says to them, you guys go out and change the world. Turn the world upside down. Would you have given Christianity much of a chance, given that set of circumstances? Probably not. And then there's the message of Christianity itself. It's an untenable message. These fishermen were supposed to go to their fellow citizens, and they were supposed to say, Jewish people, the great Yahweh, the great deliverer of Israel, the great God who created the earth, he has become a penniless preacher who is crucified naked. And you are as lost as the Gentiles if you don't believe in him. Now, how do you think that's going to go over? Probably not well. Now, imagine the the disciples having to go to the Greeks and the Romans and to their great philosophers who believed that things like truth and beauty and justice, they believed that those were cosmic ideals that exist only in the realm of the immaterial. And these disciples have to go to them and they have to say, guess what? Truth and justice and beauty have now become historical and have come into a person. And that person is an executed criminal from a little backwater colony. That's what truth and justice and beauty are now. And by the way, you great philosophers, if you don't believe this, you are lost. 
How much of a chance would you have given to the spread of Christianity at its very inception? I don't know why in the world anybody would listen to that. I mean, talk about an improbable story. Of all of the religions that were vying for ascendancy at that point in time, the message of Christianity was one that ran completely counter to all of the religious and cultural sensibilities of the day. Why did anyone listen? Why did it ever get off the ground? And why is it that over 2,000 years later, we have even heard of Jesus Christ? Well, we're about... Uh, four weeks deep into a series of sermons called uh, The Ghost. And we're looking at this, in this series, at the role and the work of the Holy Spirit. And in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, Jesus, in fact, tells us that the reason Christianity has survived 2,000 years is because of the miraculous, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And I want you to see that this morning. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you have one, to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, if you're new here, we'll put the verses up on the screen for you to follow. But if you're a regular, we want you to bring a Bible, digital, hard copy, it doesn't matter. Just bring a Bible with you so that you can follow along and take notes. By the way, someone said to me recently, hey, I'm enjoying this series, but where does the ghost come in? Well, the ghost is the subject of the whole series. The ghost is how some traditions in the past... Some, even in the present, refer to the person of the Holy Spirit. They call him the Holy Ghost. That's where the ghost comes in in this series. That's why the title. Now, almost all of the passages in the New Testament about the Holy Spirit deal with the work of the Spirit inside the church. In other words, uh, among the people who have already believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is one of the only passages that talks about the role of the Holy Spirit outside the church. Commentators call John 16 part of Jesus' farewell uh, discourse because Jesus is here preparing the disciples in advance for what's going to happen after his death. He's going to send them on a mission to proclaim the gospel all over the world. But he tells them that he's not going to be with them as they go because he's leaving them. Now, you and I know, of course, that the reason he'll be leaving them is he's going to be crucified He'll be resurrected, and then he's going to ascend into heaven. But the disciples don't seem to understand this yet, and so he prepares them for his departure. Let's pick up from verse 5. John chapter 16, verse 5. Jesus says, Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you asks, Where are you going? Because I have said these things, in other words, that he's leaving them, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor, by the way, this is the Greek word, parakletos, which refers to the Holy Spirit, says, until I go away, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In other words, Jesus is saying that even though he's going to leave, he's going to send the Holy Spirit to be present with the disciples on their mission. Now, now, why does Jesus say that his leaving would be better than staying with them? Well, Dustin uh, spoke about this last week, so I'm just going to touch on it in, in, as a way of review. Uh, first, Jesus' presence on earth was limited in that his presence was localized. He could only be in one place at a time. Moms, 
Have you ever felt, especially moms of little kids, have you ever felt the need to be in more than one place at a time? Of course you have. What, what an advantage that would be, right? Well, by sending the immaterial Holy Spirit, Jesus could be present in the person of the Holy Spirit anywhere and everywhere at the same time, okay? That was why it was better. Now, second, the second reason it was better is that Jesus' presence on earth was, it was only external, uh, the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Ghost, as some people call him, on the other hand, he can work, because he's immaterial, he can work from the inside of a person's personality and desires to change them from within at the deepest level of their souls. So because Jesus' presence was localized and external, Jesus says it is better that he sends the immaterial Holy Spirit who can be anywhere and everywhere at all times and can work from within a human being from their deepest self. That's why it's better. Now, here's a question. You might have wondered, why does Jesus refer to the Holy Spirit as uh, the counselor here? Or some of your Bibles may say comforter. Some of them may even say uh, the advocate here. Well, the, the word that is translated counselor here is the Greek word. I said it just a moment ago. It's the Greek word parakletos. And in its strictest sense, the word means to come alongside someone or, or maybe to come to someone's aid. But the word is actually a legal word that was often used to describe what a lawyer or counselor, sometimes you've heard of lawyers referred to as counselors, right? What a lawyer or what a counselor would do, namely a cross-examination in a court of law. And so by using this word parakletos, Jesus tells us that the role of the Holy Spirit outside the church, outside the people who believe in Jesus, is to work alongside the disciples as kind of a prosecuting eternity inside of people to bring them to a point of being receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean when it says that they're sort of a prosecuting attorney working from the inside out? What does that mean? Well, look at verse 8. Jesus says, when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict, there's another legal word, he will convict the world of guilt. That's what a prosecuting attorney does, right? In regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. He convicts people, right? Someone uh, comes into the courtroom, they're accused of some crime. The job of the prosecuting attorney is to convict them, to prove them guilty. Now, why? Why is the Holy Spirit uh, doing this? Why is he convicting them? Isn't that mean? Well, the reason is that until a person understands their guilt before God, they will never see, they'll never understand their need for Jesus Christ. When a doctor tells you that you have cancer, he's not doing that to be mean. He's not doing that to be hateful. He's doing that in order to, to prepare you for the treatment that you need to live. It's hard news, but it's merciful news. In the same way, in the Holy Spirit's mercy, he convicts you of your guilt. He tells you that you have a fatal soul sickness that the only antidote for is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way that he shows you your fatal soul sickness is by exposing your guilt to yourself. 
You know, the Holy Spirit works in the nooks and the crannies and the crevices and the shadows of a person's life in all of the places that they justify and rationalize all of their actions and, and all of their motives and where they work to deceive themselves into believing that they're really better people than they are. And he does this in order to open them up, to really hear and to be receptive to the only hope for their soul, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, Jesus gets a little more specific about what exactly the Holy Spirit convicts people of in verses 9, 10, and 11. And I want to just look at these three things that Jesus says that, that the Holy Spirit convicts people of. Okay? First, in verse 9, I want you to notice this. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit convicts people that their sin is deeper than they've ever imagined. This is part of the role of the Holy Spirit. He convicts people that their sin is deeper than they've ever imagined. Look at verse 9. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit convicts people in regard to sin because men do not believe in me. Because men do not believe in me. That's what sin is, Jesus says. There was a great Scottish theologian and pastor, his name was Sinclair Ferguson, and he once wrote this. He said, nothing is more common and foolish in the unregenerate heart than to assume that God is satisfied with a life in which we compensate for our sins by deeds that we wrongly assume cancel out our sin. You see what he's saying? He's saying that until the Holy Spirit reveals it to us, we have far too superficial a view of sin. We don't understand how heinous sin is, how offensive sin really is to God. All of a person's life, he or she might have thought that sin was a joke. It was an outdated concept that only primitive people could believe in. Or maybe, maybe when they thought about sin, they would just sort of shrug their shoulders and they would say, well, look, nobody's perfect. Maybe they, would, maybe they would describe sin, you know, merely as something naughty, not nice, right? But once the Holy Spirit does his work on us, we suddenly see that sin is far more penetrating, far deeper, far more serious than we have ever seen. And so no longer do we rationalize and justify. Well, look, if you knew my circumstances, you'd know why I have to do this. No longer do people say, well, why are you being so judgmental and talking about sin? No. When the Holy Spirit does his work in a person, they begin to see that the sin beneath any particular sin is the refusal to believe in Jesus Christ. It's holding Jesus in contempt, really. It's a, it's a declaration of independence from God. And in fact, it is so serious and so deep that there is no way that you can just compensate for it by saying a bunch of Hail Marys or by doing some good deed or even by whipping yourself over and over and over for it. No. Sin is so heinous that God demands your eternal death for it. That's how heinous sin is. But Jesus stepped in for you and gave his life as a substitute for you so that your sins could be forgiven and have eternal life. And because of that, rejecting Jesus is not just an intellectual exercise. 
It is not just going into a classroom and saying, this is why I don't believe in Jesus. It is not that. It's not just choosing not to believe. It is the heart of sin. It is holding in contempt what Jesus did for you. It is treating the sacrifice that he made for you lightly. It is not just an intellectual thing. I don't know if you guys saw it this past week. I saw it. It was on my um, Twitter feed. But there was a hamburger restaurant. I think it's in Charlotte, North Carolina, although I'm not exactly sure about that. They posted an advertisement on their Twitter account for their uh, hamburger joint uh, that depicted an ISIS execution of a man alongside of that was a hamburger. As it turned out, the person who was being executed by ISIS in the ad was the American journalist uh, James Foley, who was actually executed by ISIS in 2014. Understandably, people were incensed by it. Almost immediately, the burger joint and the marketing company that, that actually posted the image had to apologize for it. James Foley's mother was deeply hurt and angered by it. Why? Why? Why were people so incensed? Why was James Foley's mother so angered by this? Because it cheapened the death of her son. How would you like it, mothers, if in the last moment of your son's life, before his execution, a picture was taken, and that picture is used as an image to sell hamburgers? How would you feel about that? You'd hate it. Because it cheapens your son's life. That is what rejecting Jesus is, you see. It is cheapening the death of the Son of God. It is refusal to believe that you needed, that the only way for you or anyone else to have eternal life is if the Son of God died on a cross. It is you saying, no, he didn't need to die. That's no big deal that he died. I can do this on my own. That is cheapening the death of the Son of Jesus Christ. It is not just an intellectual decision. It is a rejection of the worth of Jesus and the sacrifice of his life for you. But you see, once the Holy Spirit does his work in a person, the death of Christ on the cross becomes for you thrilling, galvanizing, comforting. Do you realize that throughout history, in order for you to be able to sit here in these pews, in air conditioning, in comfort this morning, listening to a fantastic speaker, do you realize that throughout history, people have found the cross so galvanizing that they have been willing to th be thrown to the lions for their belief in Jesus? They've been willing to be burned at the stake for their belief in Jesus been willing to be crucified upside down for their belief in Jesus and a myriad of other forms of torture that they willingly endured because they understood the significance of what Christ had done for them on the cross. And the only way that they became willing to endure so much for Jesus is that the Holy Spirit had revealed to them what Jesus endured for them. He revealed to them that their sin was so much deeper than they ever thought, that there was no way for it to be dealt with other than for the Son of God to be crucified on a Roman cross. That's what the Holy Spirit does in the lives of people outside the church.
to bring them into a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what he did for you. It's what he did for me. And he does that out of mercy. Here's the second thing he does. The Holy Spirit not only convicts people that sin is deeper than they've ever imagined, he convicts them that righteousness is higher than they've ever imagined. It's higher than they've ever imagined. Verse 10, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will convict people in regard to righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. It's verse 10. Now, what's he mean by that? Well, you see, when Jesus was alive on the earth, it was very difficult for people. In fact, if he was alive on the earth today, it would be very difficult for you to come into contact with him and continue to practice your self-deception and to believe that somehow you're a pretty good person that meets the standard, the righteous standard of a holy God. All you would have to do would be to look at him And you would see his life, and then you would look at yourself, and you would say, I am not nearly as righteous as Jesus. It's so easy to deceive yourself outside of the presence of Jesus. But what about when Jesus returned to the Father and people couldn't see him? Again, it's so much easier to deceive yourself into thinking that you're a pretty good person, that you meet God's righteous standard when Jesus isn't standing right there next to you. Let me just give you a little illustration of what I mean by this. Many years ago, when I was in college, I was shooting baskets in, uh, in the gym at the, at the college that I attended, and I was, uh, man, I was just nailing shots from all over the court, and I was just convinced as I was hitting these shots that I was a great basketball player and that if I'd have wanted to, I could have played college ball I could have, and, and probably gone into the NBA. All of this as I'm playing by myself. But uh, a few minutes later, one of the guys who played on the college, uh, that played on the team for the college that I went to, he uh, showed up at the goal that I was uh, shooting at, and he said, would you mind if I shoot with you? We shot for a little bit. And then he said, well, you want to play a, one, a game one-on-one? And I said, well, sure, that's fine. We'll play one-on-one, thinking to myself, I'm great. I didn't score a point on the guy, not one single point. When he was not there, I thought I was great. When, I, when he was actually there and I played with him, I was put in my place. In the same way, you see, when Jesus isn't present on the earth, it is very easy to convince yourself that you're a righteous person, that you meet the standard, the righteous standard of God. But when Jesus is present, that is not possible. You see, when the Holy Spirit works in a person's life, he presses home to their conscience not only the horror of their sin, but also the infinite distance between that person and a holy God. And even that that their best deeds are filthy rags before God. Even your best deeds are filthy rags before God. By the way, do you realize, I don't know if you realize this, but there are two ways that you can run from God. Do you realize that? Two ways. The first way, it's one that all of us are familiar with. It's by trying to break all of God's laws, right? You run from God by trying to break all his laws. You, and you hear about this all the time. I mean, people, people will say, I, I mean, I've, I've played golf with people. They find out I'm a pastor, and they say, well, you know, I couldn't possibly go to a church because the walls of the church would cave in because of all the terrible things I've done. You know, they're saying they've run from God by trying to break all the rules. That's one way you can run from God. But you know what the second way that you can run from God is? It's by trying to keep his law. 
Do you realize that's a way of running from God? By trying to keep his law. This is what religious, moralistic people often try to do. They say, well, I can keep his law. I can be good enough. I can be good enough that I obligate God by obeying his law. But the only way, you see, that you can deceive yourself into believing that somehow you are righteous enough and that you have obeyed God's law is to lower his law to a humanly attainable level which takes the very righteousness out of God's law. This is why, of course, when the gospel is clearly preached, moral people hate it. And they often get very angry about it because the gospel says that the righteousness that God demands is higher than we ever imagined. It is the very perfection of Jesus. When the Holy Spirit works on a person's life, they cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. There is no hope for me. I need a Savior. Uh, The prophet Isaiah, back in uh, Isaiah chapter 6, he sees the holiness of God and he says, woe is me. I am ruined, he says. But that only happens when the Holy Spirit convicts a person. He brings them to a place that they recognize that even their best deeds are filthy rags before God and that the righteousness of God is higher than they ever imagined. So the sin of God is, he shows them, he convicts them that that, that their sin is deeper than they've ever imagined. And then he convicts them that the righteousness of God is higher than they've ever imagined. And then finally this, the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, convicts people that judgment is closer than they ever imagined. Judgment is closer than they ever imagined. Verse 11, Jesus says, and in regard to judgment, the Holy Spirit will convict them because the prince of this world now already stands condemned. Now this phrase, the prince of this world, is referring to Satan. And the reason that Jesus refers to him as the prince of this world is that the world largely follows his delusions. Jesus says he already stands condemned. Now, let me give you an example of how the world largely follows his delusions. Very tangible example of this. A little over a year ago, some of you may know this, Katy Perry, if you're a Katy Perry fan, came out with her fifth studio album. It was called The Witness. Anybody... Anybody know about that? Well, this is the problem, okay? See, Katie went on to, uh, she, she said that, that it was very poorly received, and as a result, it threw her into kind of a, uh, it threw her into a depression. So she goes on a retreat. It wasn't a Christian re- retreat. It was a kind of a spiritualist, new age kind of retreat. And she says that she went on this retreat to, quote, find her ultimate self. And here's what she said. She said, music is my first love, and I think it was the universe saying, okay, do you catch the ridiculousness of this? This is the inanimate uh, universe speaking. That seem ridiculous to you? She says, I think it was the universe saying, 
okay, you speak all of this language about self-love and authenticity, but we're going to put you, by the way, the universe is now plural, we're going to put you through another test and take away any kind of validating blankie. Then we'll see how much you do truly love yourself. Now, let me just stop there for just a moment. She says more. I'll take it to you in just a minute. But notice what she's asserting, that the impersonal, inanimate universe somehow caused her album's failure in order to reveal something to her. She goes on. That brokenness, plus me opening up to a greater, higher power and reconnecting with divinity, gave me a wholeness I never had. It gave me a new foundation. It's not just a material foundation. It is a soul foundation. Now listen again to what she's saying, that the universe has spoken to her, that she has opened up to a greater, higher power, not a person, but a power, that she is reconnected with divinity, again, not a person, but a thing, and it has made her whole. Now, this is clearly the work of the prince of this world who has deluded and deceived Katy Perry. The universe doesn't speak. There is no higher power in the universe. There is only God who is not a force, not a power, but he is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there is no reconnecting with the divinity apart from Jesus Christ, and there is no wholeness apart from Jesus. This is the deception of Satan, the prince of this world. Listen to this passage of scripture from elsewhere in the New Testament. Katy Perry would have been very well off if she would have read this uh, on the front end. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Not every person who talks about God or who even says something about Jesus. Not every person who claims to be spiritual is real. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. You see, this is what Satan does to people. He blinds them to the utter inconsistencies and foolishness of their beliefs. He uses false prophets, people who claim to be Deepak Chopra, uh, people like that, people who claim to be spiritual, they claim to be talking about God when they are not. And he blinds them to these people's utter inconsistencies and their foolishness. But when the Holy Spirit begins to work on a person, he exposes Satan's deceptions and he reveals to people that Satan is a liar who now stands condemned already And that as a result of that, the wrath of God is hanging over them too for their rejection of Christ. And that his wrath is real, it is a certainty, it is a future reality. It is not like cancer, which may happen, and if it does, you can face it then. It is not like a court appearance that may happen, and if it does, you will face it then. Rather, the wrath of God is certain. It is a future reality. 
and it awaits them with certainty for their rejection of Christ and their hostility toward God, and that that judgment is closer than they ever imagined. This is the role of the Holy Spirit outside the church, outside of the assembly of people who have already believed in Jesus. And Jesus says, were it not for the Holy Spirit's supernatural, transcendent work in the lives of people, revealing that their sin is deeper than they ever imagined, that righteousness is higher than they ever imagined, and that judgment is closer than they ever imagined, the gospel would have never gotten off the ground, and it would have never made it here to you and me in the 21st century. All the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, what's the point of all of this? I mean, I'm not telling you this just to give you intellectual knowledge, just to correct some finer points of your theology. What's the point of all of this? But I, want to, I want to draw this to a close, and I want to do it by speaking to two groups of people. First, there are those of you who are in the room this morning, who have not yet believed in Jesus. Now, maybe you hear this, what I've been talking about this morning, and you say, hey, that's what's been happening to me. I started coming to this church. Maybe somebody invited you. Maybe somebody told you about Jesus, and you decided to start coming to this church. And all of a sudden, you started going home thinking about things that you've never thought of before. And you, you, you would say, well, look, I'm, I'm, I'm even seeing things in me that I've never seen before. I'm hearing about Christ in a way that I never have before. That, my friend, is the supernatural work of the invisible Holy Spirit on your life. God, in his great mercy, has sent the Holy Spirit to awaken you to your need for the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way that you can respond is by acknowledging that you are indeed guilty, a sinner, in need of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross for your sin. But for those of you who have already believed in Jesus Christ, the only way that you will ever take the gospel to your friends and your relatives and your colleagues and your neighbors who are sinking is if you understand that the Holy Spirit is working alongside of you. Otherwise, you will get terribly frustrated and overwhelmed. How can I convince my friends, neighbors, family, colleagues of their need for Christ? I don't know how to do that. I don't know what to say. You need to know that the work of salvation from beginning to end is the work of God. Yes, you have your role in it. Your role is to tell people about Jesus. But ultimately, salvation is dependent upon the transcendent power of the Holy Spirit who is working alongside of you, convicting people of their guilt and their need for Christ. You'll never get involved in telling other people about Jesus until you understand that because you'll get overwhelmed and frustrated. Now, I want to challenge you as disciples of Jesus Christ. I want to challenge you to make a list of, say, five people. I don't know, friends, relatives, neighbors, colleagues. I don't know who they are. Five people who, as far as you understand it, have yet to come to a place where they believe in Christ. And I want to challenge you to carry that list around with you. Put it on your notes app, maybe on your phone. I don't, I don't know how you carry it around, but whatever you do, make a list of five people. And I just want you to pray for those five people. Pray that the Holy Spirit would be doing his work in them. 
And pray, too, that God would give you an opportunity to tell them what Christ has done for you. And remember, that's the gospel, right? It's what Christ has done for you. It's not what you have done for Christ. It's what Christ has done for you, a broken sinner. And what he has done for you, he will do for them as well if they believe. Would you just do that? Five people. Just make a list. Five people. Carry it around. Pray for them. Pray that God would give you an opportunity to tell them about Christ. If you think about it, everything in this passage says that the whole role of the Holy Spirit is to point people to Jesus, not to draw attention to himself. You know, in some traditions, in some Christian traditions, there's enormous focus on the Holy Spirit. But this passage teaches us the Holy Spirit isn't out to draw attention to himself. He's out to spotlight, to floodlight Jesus and Jesus alone. That's what we're called to do as disciples of Christ. To spotlight Jesus, to point people to Jesus, not to ourselves, not to call attention to us, but to point people to Jesus. In other words, more of Jesus, less of me, because he is the hope of the world. But nobody sees that. Unless the Holy Spirit does his work on their souls. Would you be praying for your friends and your family members? And those of you who have never believed in Jesus, would you this morning, in the privacy of your seat, acknowledge that you're a sinner and ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and your Savior? Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Lord Jesus, we thank you for sending your spirit. We uh, confess that many of us who are believers in you, Lord Jesus, would, if we were honest, we would confess that we sort of have lost hope in the Holy Spirit's convicting work in the world. Lord, would you energize us with that? Would you give us courage? Lord, would you remind us that the Holy Spirit is working in people's lives? Lord, would you give us the courage to uh, speak to people about what Christ has done on our behalf? Lord, for those that are in the room this morning that have never believed in you, would you, in this moment, working from the inside out through your Holy Spirit, convict them of their need for Jesus, not because you're angry, not because you're judgmental or mean, but because you want them to see you want them to receive the only hope for them or the rest of humanity in the world in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your willingness to do that on our behalf. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of the Holy Spirit, that we pray. Amen. Amen.